0: Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Frank DeCutter, author of the new book, China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower. Uh, Frank, welcome to Bookstack.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: And congratulations uh, on the book. And there's one phrase in the introduction that in many ways seems to sum up the experience of China after Mao, the state is rich the people are poor. Yes. That's a that's a very good
1: one. Um, it, it it's easy to forget when you see images of China, when you read about GDP and the size of the economy, um, you know, skyscrapers bullet trains Americans who visit and say, Why can't we have that infrastructure here? Or oh. impressive But you've got to remember, most of that belongs to the state. So this is one continuity you see in the People's Republic of China of 1949, three decades of catastrophe on the Mao all the way till now. You might think the Mao era is completely different. But one one great continuity there is that the state takes most of the benefit of any growth there is. In other words, the household share of GDP uh, is and has been one of the lowest in the history of the modern world:
0: yeah, and, and, and actually you have some uh, incredible statistics uh, in the book uh, where you you kind of talk about the levels of of poverty. I mean, for example, um, six hundred million people, you say, live on less than hundred and forty dollars a month, so that there's there's what you describe as frugality and astonishing extravagance living side by side.
1: Yes, and very hard work. Of course, I don't say that. Li Keqiang, um, number two, said that um, a couple of years ago, um, which does mean that you don't have to go to the archives, as I did, to, to find out something. But frequently, all you need to do is, is listen to what the chaps in, in power actually say. An astonishing level of poverty. You've got to remember, China is not cheap. It's, it's, not, it's not cheap. For a long time before... COVID, you had citizens from Shenzhen, People's Republic of China, across the border into Hong Kong, where I work and live, uh, not to buy milk, of course, milk, uh, there's fears about contamination about milk, but to buy ordinary products like toilet paper, because it's cheaper in Hong Kong where everything is imported than it is in the People's Republic of China. People work hard.
0: One of the things that is is fascinating about this book, and 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 you describe right from the outset, is that you know much of this is a is a lived experience. This history of China after Mao, for you personally, that uh, you studied Mandarin as a student uh, in China in the mid nineteen eighties. You've been thinking about these things uh, really for forty years or more uh, by this stage. So this you're writing a kind of living history for you personally too.
1: Yes, that's very true, and I have to say, when I arrived in the mid-'80s, I decided, once I started my PhD, to not focus on the history of the People's Republic of China from 1949 onwards, because I thought the sources uh, were were, were too problematic. You couldn't just walk into an archive. In fact, at the time, 1985, you, you couldn't really enter much of a library either. Even that was very restricted. So it's only very gradually that I've developed an interest in post-49 and then, of course, post-76 when the good old chairman dies. And of course, it is a bit of a recapitulation of my own life and experience with the People's Republic. I've been pretty much every single year since 1985, lived there for three years in total, was there pretty much uh, up to about the day before the tanks entered uh, Beijing on the 4th of in 1989. So I have seen it change and have had to listen for the best part of about, what, 40 years, have had to listen to endless nonsense about how China was reforming and opening up, quote unquote. That's what it's called, an era of reform and opening up.
0: And it's it's an interesting question about uh, you as a historian as well. I mean, how much do you think that you are drawing on your personal experiences as well as the archival work uh, that you've done in a way that, for example, you would not if you were writing about the turn of the 20th century or the 19th century or something?
1: Well, it's a very good question because, of course, I, I was not there um, during the male era from forty-nine to seventy-six, on which I wrote three books. And I wasn't there before forty-nine, the Republican era, on, on which I spent 20 years of my life. So is there a big difference between an era through which you have lived, a country you know personally, and when you dog, I I think intuition matters a great deal. Of course, what you see and not necessarily write down is an important part of your formative experience. But ultimately, I think it doesn't matter all that much. Ultimately, I think it is the quality of the evidence and the primary sources that matters most. So whether you look at, say, China in the 1920s, all China in the 1990s, or well, I've not been to the 1920s, ultimately is that the quality of the evidence that really um, matters more than one's personal experience. And I have to say, if I may extrapolate, um, I see this when I read accounts from people who haven't necessarily been to the People's Republic of China, but have quality material and a professional formation that leads them to write eye-opening accounts, whereas sometimes the specialists seem to be sidetracked by the propaganda.
0: And I wonder, though, whether that personal experience has helped to fill some of the gaps. You you talk about how there was definitely, when you were working on Mao, uh, this sense that there was a period when the archives did open up and there was a lot of material that you were able to draw on. Uh, obviously, the closer that we get uh, to the contemporary period, you know, it's it's the authorities naturally because of the whether it's just the thirty-year rule or whether it's material which even comes out kind of beyond that, that it's kind of harder to get the material. So, so I suppose I'm kind of interested in that sense of immersion that you have, and 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 whether it is something that is just a kind of an added extra, or whether it it's kind of something that can help fill in those gaps.
1: I think you're absolutely right. Again, there is intuition on the one hand, which must come from, um, from somewhere, and then there is reason. So to go back to the archives, um, it's a normal rule that a 30-year rule is quite normal. Some countries, I think Australia, have been trying to get it down to 25 years or possibly even 20. But in any event, every state will have a limit on the, uh, the, the, the documents that you can see in the National Archives. So in the case of the PRC, what was so astonishing is that I could read pretty much in a number of places all the way till the turn of the millennium, roughly 2002, material styles very much disappearing, occasionally a bit here and there, up till 2008. So where does my uh, evidence come from? It would have relied very heavily on journalists uh, from there onwards. But here's the key point. You can read a lot of reports about, let's say, 2008 the financial crisis and how that impacted the people's republic of china but frequently it just didn't feel right and in many cases i've focused i went out of my way to find the writings of a person whose opinion i respect tremendously called willie lan l-a-n um, he was based in hong kong and just knew how to write about a particular way in a you know, A particular event in a, in a way which I thought was far more convincing than, than the rest. So why did I pick him? Again, that is based both on intuition, but also reason. You know, it has to make sense. So to put it slightly differently, once you immerse yourself in material on the 1980s and 90s, I think you accumulate a certain perspective, a certain speed, a certain grounding, which then allows you to enter the last two decades, on which, of course, you cannot get any material from any archive in the people Republic It gives you a certain grounding that allows you then to discriminate um, a, 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 amongst other sources.
0: And as you hinted at uh, earlier, there there are professional China watchers today, just like there were Kremlin watchers uh, during the Cold War, uh, and I guess uh, those Kremlin watchers are back in business again now, but. But it's almost an industry, and it's one that you're very uh, skeptical of, uh, probably dismissive of. In fact, yes, I wouldn't wouldn't say
1: dismissive in the sense that some of the very best accounts really do come from journalists. Well, you might say journalists are not the China watchers, and I would probably agree with that. But you've got to remember Jasper Becker, journalist, was the very first one to write a full book on. Um, the famine that resulted from the Great Leap Forward in 1958. And there are those who wrote about the 1980s and 90s all the way till today. Um, I don't want to give too many names, but Philip Pan, it's, it's quite quite, quite Denny McMahon is the, the, another name I'm looking for. The Great Wall of Debt. Some some superb first rate journalism. The China Watch is a different story. Um, the problem here is. Captured very well by a chap from Washington called James Palmer, and I quote him in the introduction. Uh, he published a piece, I think, in Foreign Policy a couple of years ago. titled is, We Do Not Know Anything About China, quote-unquote. He has a point, but the key point really is that not even the regime itself knows all that much about the PRC, simply because there's obfuscation at every level. Uh, for instance, when it comes to the GDP, We understand GDP to be something that in the United States where you are based is calculated in three different ways by institutions independent from uh, Washington. Um, There's different ways of calculating it. Let's not go through it. But in GDP in the People's Republic of China is a command. I command you, you run a province. I command you to um, have a GDP of 7% or 5% or 10% or whatever it may be. Your promotion is based on that. Of course, you will try to inflate the figures to make sure that you reach that particular number, and so
0: and on and on it goes. So that at one stage, I think uh, you you say that it's not that we know what we don't know; it's that we don't even know what we don't know. Indeed, in, indeed, and you've got these just amazing gaps in, in
1: knowledge, or, or just a, a sheer sort of repetition of of facts that. Come once you start tracing them back to their origin. Come basically from the state's propaganda. So that's that's the difficulty. How get? How do you get beyond um, the propaganda? Which of course, when it comes from a one-party state, is a massive enterprise.
0: And there definitely is a there's a, a very strongly revisionist uh, tone to this uh, book and to, and to your argument. That not the least of which is that you know we often in the west talk about the china miracle um if we have concerns it, it is that you know maybe the miracle is over and the impact that that may have for uh, for for the west and for companies like apple for example but but you actually challenge that your question it seems to me is di, did the miracle actually really take place in the first place yes, yes indeed again goes back to gdp if
1: you take you know, the figure that is often given for, let's say, 1996, 1997 is quite clear, eight, nine, 10%, but then the state itself declares in public to foreign journalists, 2% of that eight, nine, 10% is actually overcapacity. In other words, stuff being churned out by factories, bicycles, sewing machines, or thermals bottles that are stored in warehouses because nobody wants to buy it, over capacity. And then if you read the diary of a man called Lee Ray, who was very high up in the hierarchy, his diary has been deposited by his daughter in the the Dover institution. This man spoke to to people at the very highest level. You realise it wasn't 2%, it was more like 4%. So your GDP all of a sudden is about half of, of what one might think it is. Now, here's another interesting figure, not at all from the, from the People's Republic of China. In 1976, the um, World Bank de- declares or finds that China has a GDP per capita, per person, uh, which ranks in the world at number 123. So, the, the 123rd highest per capita GDP in the world at the end of the millennium, after 25 years of reform and opening up, it ranks 130. So it's lower. So there you go. There's your economic miracle up till the turn of the century. Afterwards, of course, it changes quite a bit. And the reason for that is, on the one hand, WTO, which China joins in 2001, and of course, the financial crisis in When relatively to other countries. China does quite well. So you have to put that in a particular perspective. And again, as you said right in the beginning, you've got to remember that a great amount of that wealth goes to the state, not to the people.
0: Yeah. And as as you say, there's this obsession with growth rather than with development. There's astonishing waste and and local incompetence. Uh, The other element of this uh, that you draw attention to in the book is that China's economy is built on speculation that there's massive debt there's, there's the boom, but uh, I think you describe it as the endlessly postponed bust uh, that you would normally expect in these circumstances.
1: Well, it, indeed, I'm not, a, a, I'm not an economist. But one thing you realize once you start reading through some of the material in the archives it, is how many reports are about debt. Now, the key point I want to make here is that, again, when you talk about GDP – you got to understand that our definition of GDP is quite different from what it is in the People's Republic of China, where it is a, a, a command, a quota. But it's the same thing with bank. When you say bank, you think money, capital. In the People's Republic of China, capital belongs to the state, banks belong to the state. We know this, but what does it actually mean? It, it means very much that at the local level, it is your party secretary who will decide where some of that money goes. It is the chaps at the very top in Beijing who decide how to allocate these funds, including, of course, the savings of ordinary people deposited with banks, in other words, state banks. So it is politics all the way through these last 40 years, in fact, from 49 onwards, it is politics that determine how these funds are allocated. Not the market. So it seems like a simple one. We tend to forget that.
0: And while we talk about politics, another Western perspective on China that has has really taken a hit in the in the last few years is that you know for a long time we thought that the road to pluralism was going to come through capitalism in China. But again, as you point out, various leaders have reiterated throughout the the history that you've covered here that China will never adopt a plural system. Why do you think it is that we haven't taken them at their word on something like this?
1: As you point out very clearly, um, all along, these leaders have repeated time and again what really are the four cardinal principles, quote unquote, which have been inscribed by Deng Xiaoping himself in the Constitution in 1982. The four cardinal principles are what? Uphold the socialist way, which is a socialist economy. Uphold Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought. Uphold the dictatorship of the proletariat, which means not the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. And four, um, uphold the leadership of the communist party. These are the four cardinal principles. They are repeated time and again by every leader. Last time I heard about it was when Xi Jinping uh, emphasize the importance of the Four Cardinal Principles. In October 2022, only very recent, the greatest reformer, quote-unquote, of all, Zhao Ziyang, pointed out in 1987 that China would never have separation of powers or what he uh, scornfully referred to as that democratic system uh, of the imperialist camp. Uh, why did leaders not listen? Quite frankly, I think it um, boils down to something quite straightforward. It's called racism. If a Soviet during the Cold War told you we will never have separation of powers, you take it very seriously. When someone from a distant part of the world tells you that, you think, ah, I don't really mean that. Chinese communism is not real communism. That's the premise. That's the premise. And it's the premise, um, you know, that was dominant in the United States, at least where you are, before 49, when the State Department described Mao as an agrarian reformer rather than a communist, was dominant when uh, Nixon and Kissinger visited '72. This is a Confucian country, you know, with the Confucian traditions, not communist. And, of course, ever since. Now, there's something else I want to emphasize, and this really matters greatly, because we want to talk about a clash of worldviews between Western leaders and the People's Republic of China. And it goes back, I'm going to take a minute or two for this. This, to me, is the, the crux, and it's not in the book, in, in 1957, um, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles comes up with a notion called peaceful evolution. Uh, his view is, if you help, if you use the, the, the World Bank, if you use international institutions and, of course, resources from the United States to help satellite states of the Soviet Union, Poland, Hungary, if you help them economically, then Very gradually, they will peacefully evolve towards a democratic system. That's the view. And this is, of course, exactly what happened in Poland, even as the tanks, about 200 of them, enter Beijing on the 4th of June 1989 to crush the population. On that very same day in Poland, people vote the Communist Party out of power, so Poland Quickly followed by Hungary in 1989, peacefully evolved towards democracy, having been helped economically by the United States and other countries. This is the greatest fear of the Communist Party. And in the summer of 1989, Chiang Zemin makes clear we must fight peaceful evolution. So from there onwards to this day, every time that you have a Bill Clinton or a George Bush or a Kevin Rudd say, ah, you know, China will evolve peacefully towards a more pluralistic system. What the chaps in Beijing hear is, ah, that's peaceful evolution. They wish to overthrow us. They wish to make sure that the leadership of the Communist Party of China is weakened. That's what they hear. So it's a clash, a clash of views.
0: Yes, and, and it's interesting in in terms of terminology that you're not afraid to call China a dictatorship uh, in the book. For a long time, people really were unwilling to use exactly that phrase about China. Well, it,
1: again, um, much of the quotation, uh, the, the fact of six hundred million people living on a mere pittance is, is not my yeah. fact, but the fact that comes from the number two at the time, Li Keqiang. Equally. This is also crystal clear in the People's Republic of China. You will remember the four cardinal principles inscribed in the Constitution. One of them is China is a dictatorship of the proletariat. So they pride themselves on being a dictatorship of the proletariat. It is a dictatorship. When you do not have separation of powers, it means that you have a monopoly over power. A monopoly over power is your definition of a dictatorship.
0: You're actually speaking to us from Hong Kong today. Um, obviously, during the history that you've covered, Hong Kong changed its status from being a, 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 Brit, a kind of under the control of Britain to a part of China. Yeah, you know, how has how has Hong Kong itself changed? And what about for you? I mean, you you you're using the phrase uh, dictatorship here. You're talking about the kind of political control in China. And yet, you from Hong Kong have produced this really quite critical book about China. So, you know, how 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 possible is it for somebody like you to operate uh, and to write the kind of book that you've written here?
1: Well, so far so
0: good, but you've got to remember something.
1: Um, it's based on facts. My books are based on facts, and these facts come from, most of the time, come from the very uh, archives um, run by the party. It's not like I'm coming up with some sort of fictional account. The other thing you've got to remember about Hong Kong is that, um, again, it's in the book, if you read it carefully, at no point, at no point did the leadership in Beijing promise democracy for Hong Kong. This is a misunderstanding on the part of many people in Hong Kong and elsewhere that such a promise was made. Deng So Ping, in fact, pointed out very clearly Democracy is not a suitable system for Hong Kong. He said so uh, back in the uh, late 1980s or early 1990s.
0: Although there was an implication that there would be two systems within one state.
1: Yes, but from the point of view of Beijing, there still are two systems. Of course there are two systems. Otherwise there wouldn't be a border. This is two different economic
0: systems. What about um, the kind of thinking about the way in which uh, the Chinese government uh, interprets its own history? There was that fascinating um, and, and, and really intriguing insight into what the party thinks. Uh, recently, when we saw the footage of China's former leader being asked to leave the stage during the Communist Party Congress, uh, it left a lot of people, particularly in the West, trying to work out exactly uh, what that meant and what had just happened. Uh, what what do you think it meant and, and what does it tell us about the way in which the current uh, regime of President Xi views its, its own recent history?
1: Well, this is where the China watchers go in overdrive, trying to interpret an event. We do need people who follow what's going on. But the issue here is that you are operating in the absence of fact. Which is very much why I am a historian and why I'm very reluctant to make pronouncements about events that happened very recently or even in the last ten years. The book pretty much uh, wraps up the story in uh, around about 2012 when Xi Jinping comes to the fore. Now, the the point really is that in the absence of facts, um, there's a great amount of speculation um, and. I'm simply very reluctant to engage in it. But one thing that comes out very clearly from the book is that we, by that I mean foreigners, China watchers, specialists, we tend to read too much into some of these events. And there's always a a saying I have in mind, do, do not ascribe to malice that which can be more easily attributed to stupidity in other words don't think this is some very refined little ritual in which a message is sent to party members or the rest of the world it may simply be a cock-up now the term cock-up does not appear in my book but the endless number of cock-ups rather rather than conspiracy rather than conspiracy Conspiracy theory generally is wrong simply because it ascribes too much power to the very people who are um, believed to be engaging in this conspiracy. A very good example would be the, the abrupt, if you wish to me to talk about a recent event, I will very happily talk about the abrupt ending of lockdowns um, a month or two or three ago in December. When after a great number of people began to demonstrate against the lockdowns, um, they were lifted from one day to the next. Not a single person had predicted that that might happen, and that's exactly my key point, namely that when you have a one-party state, the decisions can be extremely abrupt. We tend to think of dictatorships as very stable and very predictable, but it's not quite like that at all. Decisions are made from a political point of view and if a particular regime decides that there is a danger there uh, that might lead to instability, it will reverse a decision overnight without any preparation whatsoever. And that's precisely what happened with uh, the end of lockdowns three months ago. Utterly unpredictable.
0: And finally, Frank, I mean, taking into account Mao's famous quip that it's t- it's, perhaps it's too early to tell, um, what what lessons do you think that Washington and the West should be taking from your history?
1: Well, my fear my is, it goes back to an editorial by uh, Kevin Rudd, published it, uh, a couple of months ago, and it's a widespread sentiment. Um, the editorial, the title, I I think, I believe is something like Red China is Back. The point of the book is Red China never went away. My fear is that in Washington and elsewhere, we... Engage in wishful thinking, you know, if if only Xi Jinping were to quietly step down, if only we could go back to business as usual, but there never was any business as usual. All along, as I said, four cardinal principles have been upheld by this regime, from Deng to Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping. There's a continuity there, not an abrupt sort of interrupt in the way the country is run. So. Let's just read the Constitution of the People's Republic of China. And and when the leaders emphasize the importance of these four cardinal principles, let's just listen
0: and respect them. So the book is China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower. It's written by my guest, Frank DeCutter, and published by Bloomsbury. But for now, Frank, congratulations again and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening.